are listening to The External, the podcast by EU Renew, keeping you up to date on the latest scholarship on Europe in the world. EU Renew is a Jean Monnet policy debate project funded by the European Union's Erasmus program. I'm Gustavo Miller. And I'm Carrie Otterburn. We are broadcasting from the Levin Center for Global Governance Studies at the University of Levin. Today, we are joined by Dr. Benjamin Martel of the University of Edinburgh. Benjamin recently published an article titled Withdrawal Symptoms, Party Factions, Political Change, and the British Foreign Policy Post-Brexit in the Journal of European Public Policy. Thank you, Ben, for joining us today. Well, thanks both for having me. It's great to be here. Thank you. Your paper argues that factional politics within the UK Conservative Party, particularly during the Brexit negotiations with the European Union and the failure to approve Theresa May's withdrawal agreement, have brought to power a pro-Brexit faction with a particular set of worldviews for foreign policy. This faction that is in power also needs to showcase a clear-cut break from the EU and, I would add, the EU external action. Now let's start with the first question. Could you start by elaborating in more historical terms on this transition away from a comprehensive partnership with the European Union as a core goal of British foreign policy? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Britain has always had um, a European component to its foreign security policy since the 1970s, right? I mean, when the UK joined in 73, European political cooperation um, was a thing. There was political dialogue between um, the members of uh, the, the then European communities, um, partly motivated by a desire to uh, differentiate the European position during the Cold War from that of the Americans, right, in this a very fractious period. Um, Britain wasn't one of those states in the 1990s necessarily uh, pushing for an EU security and defence capability. That was really um, the, the French position of, of Europeanizing foreign policy. But at the same time, Britain was really instrumental, along with France, in pushing in the late 1990s for an EU security and defence capability. That, that would allow the EU to give give teeth to its common foreign and security policy at Maastricht. And this is partly to do with the, the period of the late 1990s, fears about post-Cold War American disengagement from the continent, but it's also about the politics of the Blair era and uh, the, the centrist kind of pro-European new Labour project. But since then, you know, the the EU's common foreign security policy has been an important component of Britain's own foreign security policy, albeit not unquestioned. Uh, there's been, you know, it's been variously said that the UK has at times lost interest in the CSDP, uh, but it's found it an important um, uh, platform for uh, deployment um, and an important forum. Um, and so Brexit really reopened a lot of interesting questions, right? Because foreign and security policy wasn't a big part of the referendum. It wasn't as big as areas like immigration, sovereignty, and taking back control. Um, but Brexit implied a more distant relationship from EU foreign and security policy. Um, and I think initially it was assumed that it would be very easy to agree continuity in this area, right? Because officials on both sides, and, and you could argue that many political leaders on both sides wanted to see considerable continuity in foreign and security policy. 
Um, and this led in mid-2018 uh, to uh, the May government promoting a, a comprehensive agreement in security and defence um, uh, with, with the European Union. Uh, and what happened, interestingly, is you know, this was never going to be negotiated at the time. It was always going to be part of the future relationship, even though Britain wanted those talks to take place sooner. Uh, was how clear it became that there was opposition to to some of May's proposals. Uh, domestically, this was a very fraught period. Uh, the Brexiteers were finding lots of problems with May's deal. Um, May was hoping to keep the UK plugged in to, to the EU in various policy areas, and this became kind of securitized in British politics. But the EU also objected to the idea that the UK would have any more than existing third countries. Um, and so it became much harder in practice to negotiate uh, anything in security and defense. And then in early 2020, obviously within the context of um, a, a much uh, a, a new political leadership under the Johnson government, but also in the middle of the COVID pandemic, uh, Johnson scrapped the idea of negotiating this in the TCA and security and defense was never negotiated. And so since the beginning of 2021, we've essentially had no formal relationship uh, between the UK and the EU on foreign and security policy. So in a way, your research opens up the black box of factional politics to understand its impact on a country's foreign policy. So I have a two-part question for you. What led you to spot this gap in the literature? And is this research agenda useful to understand the foreign policy making in other countries in Europe and beyond? Thank you. It's a great question. I mean, I'm not the first person to look at parties or factions. Um, but when I was doing my PhD back in um, the early noughties, there were relatively few people writing on this area. Um, and I think it's interesting that there's there's many more people now working on, on parties, ideology and factions. Um, I think one of the reasons for that is that a lot of global changes have made partisanship and ideology and, and political parties more important for our understanding of foreign policy, right? We've seen um, as globalization has intensified, increasing uh, contestation over the legitimacy of international organizations and a lot of policy areas uploaded to the supranational level. We've seen the emergence of a, a multipolar world, which while it might in some ways, you know, resemble elements of the Cold War in terms of the the threat intensity is actually a much more flexible order, right? Which allows parties to to have various different positions on who uh, who countries' allies should be. And we've seen, of course, over the past decade or so, the rise of populist parties, many of whom have seen foreign policy as a great way of, um, you might argue, either either distracting their their supporters or public, or, or kind of projecting their their values abroad. And, and here I'm thinking of you know, the catchphrases like uh, America first and, and global Britain. Um, for me, it's less a question of showing that parties matter. Uh, of course they do, right? I mean, we, we know that even during the Cold War, parties matter to a certain extent, but it's about asking how they matter uh, and under what circumstances. Um, and I think my emphasis on factions here is really motivated by looking at the British case, because with the UK's Westminster model, with its majoritarian institutions, you tend to have a smaller number of broader-based parties, right? Because you need to get at least a certain level of support uh, from the population in order to, to get that 
to win each of the seats. You know, the, the British political system really punishes smaller parties. Um, and so what comes out of this is that the real factional divides are actually within the parties. And I think, you know, you, you've seen this maybe maybe with the Labour, uh, the new Labour government and, and Iraq in the past, but also now very much with the politics of Brexit. It's been a politics between different conservative factions. As to whether it's useful, I mean, I would say I think it is, but I think it very much depends on the context. Um, I think if you take the example of, you know, Russia's war in Ukraine and the European response to it, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that party politics matters, right? You know, we would we would expect, I think, uh, very different responses in Germany, say, from um, Scholz or Merkel and from their parties. And we can see, again, factional politics there. But it operates in very different ways in different national contexts, and it, it's more important in some places than others. And I think that taking the, the agenda of you know, political parties and foreign policy making forwards, it's much more important that we recognize uh, the scope conditions of, of those actors and where they matter than we, that we simply assume that we're always going to see divisions within or between parties in every context. So in the paper, you also argue that uh, in the realm of foreign policy, the UK can afford to treat the EU and its institutions and therefore the relationship with them as useful, but not as absolutely necessary. In which policy domains do we see a different power dynamic and uh, what would explain that difference? Yep, thank you. That, that's a really good question. I mean, the obvious one would be the economic and trade relationship, right? Where uh, the politics of Brexit is very much determined by uh, the UK's need to access uh, the single market, to be able to uh, avoid uh, the most damaging barriers to trade. And of course, with Johnson's deal, we we haven't avoided that, but we have essentially free trade in goods. Uh, we, we never got the frictionless trade, and that's been damaging to the UK economy. Um, I, I think the difference there, of course, is that when it comes to the economic relationship, the UK has always been in a situation of asymmetric interdependence, right? It's it's relied much more on the EU than vice versa. The UK has much smaller market power when uh, the EU is negotiating as it did as a very unified uh, block. Whereas when we think about uh, foreign and security policy, we're talking here about a domain which is intergovernmental, going back to the pillar system at Maastricht, um, where the EU is not the only actor, right? Where you've got a host of minilateral, bilateral and, and NATO relationships between the parties, uh, where the UK really is a major a player and one of the two major security and defense actors on the European continent, um, and where you don't have beggar thy neighbor dynamics, right? So, so the less secure the UK is, uh, the less secure the EU is, whereas in the economic and trade relationship, any advantages the UK could get would be at the expense of the integrity of the single market. And I think these dynamics are absolutely key to understanding what happens. I mean, it explains, I think, why the May government perhaps thought it had more power than it did in negotiating um, or in proposing a, a comprehensive security partnership, because it didn't uh, understand the extent to which the EU was seeking to link these two issues. But it also explains why Johnson could, in a relatively costless way, um, scrap UK-EU formal cooperation and focus rather on bilateral ties. 
And, and when I say costless, I, I don't mean it was costless. And a lot of the individuals on both sides I've spoken to uh, involved in the formulation uh, of foreign policy and involved in a relationship were, uh, I think, quite upset that that had resulted. But it, it's relatively costless. You, you can do it in a way that you simply couldn't have no deal uh, in the economic relationship. And I think one thing that comes out of this that I find interesting, and, and this is something I explore uh, in a future uh, forthcoming paper with Alexander Masarovich, is that this has actually set the stage for compensatory dynamics in foreign policy, whereby UK governments who've been unable to negotiate their preferred relationship in the economic and trade arena have increasingly started to focus on uh, delivering that through foreign and security policy. Uh, and it's noteworthy in that regard that the, the Labour government's first major announcement on European policy was about a security agreement with the EU and not about unpicking uh, dynamics of uh, Brexit and the single market. That's really interesting. Uh, you just mentioned that you spoke to numerous uh, individuals in this um, in the process of your research. And in fact, your paper relies significantly on interviews to collect the data that back up your claims related to British foreign policy. Can you talk a bit more about what you learned from these interviews and also from the interview process itself? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I've always enjoyed conducting interviews. Uh, I, I conducted around 70 interviews on Brexit for this and, and various projects with with um, senior officials and policymakers on both sides. Um, I, I think, and, and I encourage as well my, my PhD students to undertake interviews as well. I think it really gets to the heart of how uh, the policymaking process is seen by those in the inside. Um, and what it allows us to do, as I would say, kind of crowdsource the relevant dynamics. And so you, as anyone who does interviews will say, you reach a, a kind of saturation point where you're hearing the same material again and again. But very often alongside those claims, you learn from every new interview about new dynamics that you might not have taken into account. Um, I think at that point, it's then up to the analyst to make sense of these kind of claims, which can sometimes be relatively disparate. This doesn't, you know, this shouldn't be done in a sort of arrogant way where we're saying that we understand what's going on and, and the policymakers don't. But I think we're very often placed, well placed as scholars to identify linkages with the, the concepts and the theories that we use and therefore make, make a little bit of sense about the background dynamics and what's going on. In terms of the part of the question about the interview process, I think I've learned a few things over the years. Um, one is the importance of trust with the interviewer um, and the interviewee and making sure that you take on board their requests and that you're very open and honest about how the data will be used and, and, and what you're doing with the project. And the more trust you get, that tends to build um, cooperation uh, over subsequent uh, weeks and months because uh, interviewees will then feed back into your research at a later date if, if they're sent versions of the papers. Um, I think it's really important to avoid leading questions, but also extremely difficult to do so. And I find that when I, I try to go into the interviews with an open mind, but I probably have an idea of the kind of dynamics I'll be finding, and it's very hard to think of neutral questions uh, which allow you to get at that. Um, one of the difficulties with Brexit was operating in a relatively politicized environment. Um, within the UK, it was much harder to speak to uh, pro-Brexit individuals. I did manage to, but it was certainly a, a smaller proportion of, of those who were 
you know, willing to talk about how annoyed they were about the Brexit process. And so that requires a little bit of effort to think of alternative sources, uh, particularly materials from manifestos and the Leave campaign that, that did justice to the views of Leave supporters. Um, and of course, between the UK and the EU, the, the EU was always very happy to talk about Brexit. And one of the difficulties has been getting more individuals from the UK on the record um, in order to understand uh, what the dynamics were on the UK side. Because of course, the EU's narrative, whilst not incorrect, is always going to be a little self-serving. And so you miss a bit of the nuance um, uh, if you don't have that, that balance there. It sounds obvious, but it's actually been quite difficult to achieve. Um, and then finally, I think there's always that need as the analyst to constantly reflect on what the data can actually tell you. And, and very often you'll see, you know, sometimes interview quotes will be stuck into a text and you think, well, does that make it so that that person on that day said that? And so realizing, I think, what we add as academics in terms of the interpretation, that that's a really big part of our task. It's not simply uh, acting as a cipher for uh, what the policymakers have said. Right. No, thank you very much for this. I think there's a, there's a lot of insight, especially for, for the young scholars interested in, in doing interviews in, in their research of, on the European Union, but also Europe, Europe's position in global governance these days. Now, coming back to, to your paper's main argument uh, that, that domestic party factional politics has a lasting impact on how the UK interacts or, or sees its relationship with the EU, are there other factors that play a substantial role in the formulation of British foreign policy and, and its approach towards the European Union uh, and European integration? Yeah, for sure there are. Um, you know, the, I think the quote-unquote national interest can't be ignored, nor can questions about British identity. Um, and, and, and of course, recently, I think we've seen a lot of path-dependent dynamics coming into play as, as after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've seen increased cooperation between both sides and that's created a, a, a dynamic where both sides are gradually learning to uh, cooperate more with one another. Um, I'm not trying to say in any way that the other factors don't matter. I think what I do in this paper is try to identify the meaningful variation and theorize that and, and that variation is always going to be a matter of degree um, and in this case it's simply shifting uh, the emphasis on uh, the UK's European component of its foreign policy, you know, more towards the, the bilateral or the global or, or the NATO uh, element, depending on the policy area. I think what is interesting, though, is that a lot of the factors that seem like they're competing with uh, partisan explanations are mediated through ideology and therefore factional politics. So, you know, the way that pro-Brexit conservatives see British identity and see the national interest is, of course, very different from uh, the way that uh, progressives or the Labour, uh, the Labour centre or, or the uh, more centre-right conservatives would see it. And this is something I explore in a paper with Adrian Rogsad, where we look at the, the underlying kind of ideologies of those different uh, movements. Um, the other thing I'd mention here is I think Political dynamics beyond partisanship also matter. And I touched on a couple of those earlier when I talked about the emergence of compensatory dynamics and issue linkage. You know, these are things that I explore in other papers rather than try to throw everything in here, because I think the best way to understand what's going on here is to stratify the different dynamics and then 
trace these processes through time rather than um, sort of throw everything in. But for sure, there are there are lots of other aspects to uh, factional politics, and there are lots of other things going on here. Great. Thank you. This has been really interesting. And I think now we've had a bit of a, a good overview of what's actually in the article. So maybe we can look uh, a bit more into some of the implications of your research and maybe even some of the other um, items you were just talking about. So one of your other areas of expertise is the external action of the EU itself, looking also at the Union's common foreign security policy. Much has been said about the impact of Brexit on the EU's capacity to act autonomously in areas such as security and defense, but also global politics more broadly. What is your current take on this matter, and have you changed your opinion over time? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, I think I would say it's very complicated, and it's not that I have changed my position over time, although the, the Ukraine war has certainly, I think, changed things in recent years. It's more that it I find it difficult still to unpick the different aspects of this relationship. So on the one hand, we know that Brexit did have an important impact on uh, European foreign and security policy. Uh, you kind of took out that UK veto and allowed new structures to develop. Uh, we've seen a lot of movement in recent years on on PESCO, permanent structured cooperation, the creation of the, the so-called permanent headquarters, the European Defence Fund. These are all things that the UK would either have vetoed or supported a very different version of. Um, so in that sense, you've seen a, a shift towards perhaps greater actiness, but it's also come at the price of, let's say, capabilities and credibility in some respect, right? Because it's also now operating without the UK and the UK is an independent actor, Uh non-EU formats have arguably been boosted in some respects because there are ways in which the, UK, the, the member states can engage uh, with, the e, with, the e, um, with the UK. Sorry, um, And I think this is something that the member states and the EU are well aware of, right? And the, and the European External Action Service tries to make sure that bilateralism on behalf of the member states doesn't undermine the EU's position, but there's always going to be a lot of tensions there. And I think the other thing I'd say on that is that this idea of EU strategic autonomy, I mean, it really picks up in the aftermath of Brexit, I think, because it allows the EU to say something quite similar um, to what the UK is doing with Global Britain, which is to say, regardless of the divorce, we're going to be fine, we're going to become a more important global actor. And there's something a little bit politically self-serving about this. And actually, if you dig down into what people mean by strategic autonomy, very often it's actually closer to European strategic autonomy and in and, and, and many quarters uh, this idea of a European pillar in NATO than it is genuine EU strategic autonomy. It depends on the member states and it depends on the area, but it's much more complicated. But the unifying discourse of strategic autonomy essentially allows the EU to say, well, you know, clearly we're going to become a more important global actor post-Brexit. It's more complicated, I think. The other part of this is that Russia's war in Ukraine has been very transformative too. Um, we're seeing a more muscular EU response using a range of tools, some of which are uh, through the CSDP, many of which are not. And um, this might be contrasted on the one hand with the fact that the war clearly emphasizes the the indispensability of NATO and that you've seen a, a lot of 
for, you know, you've seen former uh, neutral states seeking to become NATO members. Um, but at the same time, I think we can't ignore the developments in the EU and the UK as well, which is very much pushed for a, 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 pro, uh, a NATO first uh, and independent approach is has realized uh, over the months and years that it has to uh, have greater cooperation with the EU, especially when it comes to areas like sanctions, coordination on training missions, reconstruction, coordination of, of uh, military equipment, uh, and things like that. So as always in European security and defense, it's a very complex patchwork, but I think the EU is becoming a more important actor and other actors have to be cognizant of that. Thank you, Ben, for that. And we, we are unfortunately just about out of time. So so let's talk a little bit about the future, shall we? And uh, our last question in this podcast uh, always tries to shed light on the implications of the research to Europe's role and place in the world, which is particularly sensitive these days, given the geopolitical and geoeconomic changes at the global level. You mentioned multiple times the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine as some sort of critical juncture. We now see also renewed conflict in the Middle East. So based on, on this and on your research, should we expect the EU and the UK foreign policies to, to drift further apart or grow together in the future? That's a great question. I would say that because I'm pretty pessimistic about the future in global terms, I'm actually quite optimistic about the future for the UK and the EU relationship. Because I think what these external crises do, and especially now that we have two wars on Europe's border, uh, is they they really put things into perspective going back to the Brexit divorce. Uh, they really highlight the indispensable role of both the UK and the EU uh, in uh, the security and defence uh, environment. Um, they highlight, I think, the, the commonality of interests uh, that both sides uh, have and that and the European nations have as well. Uh, and this is only going to become more prevalent if we have in the US... Um, a second Trump presidency. So I don't think we'll see too much drift in the long term. At the moment, both sides seem to be finding more ways to cooperate with one another. Um, we could talk about a, a very noticeable re-engagement in security and defense between the UK and the EU uh, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, and we see that both sides have similar strategic interests. They just disagree on the the precise institutional frameworks through which this operates. Um, I think as well that both sides have kind of had their performative moment. You know, global Britain is no longer really spoken about. The Sunak administration is relatively pragmatic, although um, uh, there is still opposition within conservative circles to formalized um, security and defense cooperation with the EU. At the informal level, things are very much improved. I think a lot depends on the politics on the UK side. Um, we know that the Labour Party favours increased cooperation and a formal agreement, but equally on the EU side, we're seeing some of those barriers, especially once the Windsor framework uh, was agreed under Sunak, some of those barriers to uh, thinking about what role the UK could play have, I think, decreased. And the UK's standing uh, post-Ukraine has been uh, very much improved. So. I'm relatively optimistic about the ability of both sides to to come together in uh, dealing with the, the pessimistic world that we have in front of us. Fantastic. Benjamin, thanks so much for joining us to discuss your article. 
withdraw symptoms, party factions, political change, and British foreign policy post-Brexit. This article is available open access in the Journal of European Public Policy. You can find the link on eu-renew.eu forward slash podcasts. The External is produced by EU Renew and funded by the European Union's Erasmus program within the framework of the Jean Monnet Policy Debate EU Renew project. Thank you for listening. Thank you. That was very good. Thank you, Ben. Wonderful. Thanks, guys. I, those questions were really good.